Hey, you're listening to Cut for Time, a podcast from Faith Church located on the north side of Indianapolis. My name is Claire Kingsley. Each week, I'll sit down with one of our preaching pastors to discuss their Sunday sermon. Cut for Time is a look behind the scenes of sermon preparation, and they'll share with us a few things that we didn't hear from the sermon on Sunday. Thanks for listening. It's time for Cut for Time. Let's do it. After various technical difficulties and a few location changes, we're on. Let's hope. We'll see. <laughs> Let's hope. We'll see how long it lasts. Yes. All right, Joey. Uh, why don't you give us a recap from your sermon on Sunday? Yeah. This is our third sub-series. We just started in our study yes. of the Acts of the Spirit. Yeah. So uh, the, the new so the new series, is, the reason it's different is because what the gospel is doing, where the gospel is going, is, is expanding. It's moving beyond just Jerusalem and Judea now into Samaria. Very specifically, you know, we're told in verse four, I think that or verse five, Philip's going to Samaria. And so since the gospel is moving in this direction, it's it's time to it's a new focus. So we're talking about the scattering of the church, the scattering of the gospel across, uh, you know, as it starts to spread out from Jerusalem and into Samaria and other parts of, of uh, the earth. So uh, in, in this particular sermon, you know, we were just looking at the effects of uh, the execution of Stephen. So he's just been martyred, uh, lynched really is a better word for it. And then it's okay. What happens after that? A great persecution starts. And people flee, the believers, followers of Jesus, the majority of them flee Jerusalem. And then wherever they happen to go, they're continuing to preach the good news, which is just astounding to me that people who had whose lives and livelihoods had been ruined because of their faith in the Messiah, uh, they're being driven out of their homes in the night. They're leaving behind everything that they know and everything that they own. They're being forced to flee to other parts, other relatives, other friends, who, who knows where, you know, to maybe where they have no support. And on the way, as they're going and everywhere they go, they're like, yeah, I'm on the run because I believe in Jesus. You should believe in Jesus too. Like he's the Messiah. He's the Lord of the world. And it's like, man, they were a hundred percent convinced that this was real and this was true or else this persecution would have just ended it. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, Joey, we've got a few questions that were texted in yeah. and uh, I'm gonna just start throwing them at you here. All right, Joey, first, is there a reason why all the apostles would have stayed in Jerusalem with the Jesus movement near death? Wouldn't it make more sense for them to split up or move away from the epicenter of the persecution? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, it um, speaking to the practicalities of it, I'm not entirely sure, like, oh, you know, the, the wisdom of stay, go, whatever. Uh, but we should remember, too, that there's some there's some symbolism at work here. Uh, you remember the 12 apostles like this is important. It's the 12 reconstituted tribes of Israel. This is the extension of Israel and the movement of now the Messiah has come. And we're going to find out that it you know, it encompasses the whole world, not just Israel. Uh, but there's something important to be said for Jerusalem's the capital. And eventually, as we you know read to the book of Revelation, Jerusalem is the center still. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the center of the new heavens and the new earth. And so um, it's symbolically very important that they stay there because the these new tribes, you know, new Israel reconstituted in Jesus and in the Jesus movement still needs to find its center in Jerusalem. Okay. All right. Can you give us insight as to why the Roman leaders who did not want to put Jesus to death would be willing to side with Jewish leaders in persecuting and executing the early church? 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, because it's one thing to uh, put down a so-called messiah with a few followers. And it's another thing now that this movement has grown to thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of followers of Jesus. And remember, uh, it's very intentionally set up. It's like the cry, Jesus is Lord, is a direct repudiation of the law of the land that Caesar is Lord. And so it is not just a religious movement in the way we use those words today. Like when we talk about a religion, we're talking about primarily a post 18th century invention of believing you can separate religion from politics, from economics, from vocation, you know, your work and all of those things. Uh, this is all bound up to this is a political, social, uh, economic movement all wrapped up uh, together because they believed that Caesar is not the one in charge. Jesus is. And mm -hmm. so um, it's very threatening uh, politically as well as religiously. Uh, you can't mm -hmm. just carve it out and separate church and state in this uh, particular time period. So um, there, there's a lot of incentive for Roman officials to tamp this down. And they have a reputation for tamping down messianic movements wherever they are, messianic or political overthrow movements in any of the countries that they've subjugated. Yeah. Do you think that um, we're getting better at integrating all of those things again with like religion with or our faith with politics, with economics, with or do you think we're getting worse mm -hmm. at it? Mm -hmm. You know, oh, man, that's a good question. I mean, I think in order for a pluralistic society to work in which we do not require all members of the society to believe, you know, have the same religious commitments, there has to be separation. Uh, there has to be, you know, instrumentally, there has to be separation, but it is very difficult on an individual level to actually separate those things. Um, if your religion, if your belief that Jesus really is in charge of the whole world, if you really believe that, that affects not just your politics, it affects your politics. I don't mean it affects the way you vote. I mean, it affects the level to which you think voting um, is actually that it would like the level to which you put your hope in uh, uh, an elected leader. And so uh, the level to which you think the things that you you know buy and consume, uh, are they exploitative of human beings or not? I mean, it even it even it, it impacts things like, yeah, I don't know, you run a you run a factory. Should you really be counting the number of packages that an Amazon sorter does per minute? Or are you just turning that that human being into a machine and instrumentalizing them and treating them as less than human, you know, so your faith integrates into all those areas because all of those areas are intertwined anyway. We just have to separate them and think of them categorically differently in order for a pluralistic society to hold together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right, Joey, you um, were bold and had like kind of uh, an aside application for us in this sermon. And you challenged us to be wary of creating and claiming an identity of a persecuted minority, not mm -hmm. being a victim. Um, mm -hmm. That probably was really difficult to preach. Would you just give us a little bit more insight, expand this thought a little bit more, maybe in a way that you couldn't do in the sermon? Because obviously it wasn't your main point, but in cover time, mm -hmm. we have an opportunity to unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm glad you brought it up. It was a you know carefully written out part of the sermon because I didn't want to be misunderstood, um, but also wanted to give us what I felt like needed to be a a real caution that um, I just noticed 
Christians, especially conservative Christians, evangelical Christians, as the culture around us has changed and has given you know less credence to uh, Christian moral beliefs or uh, ethical ways of patterning our, our life and behavior, um, that we have been quick to use the word persecution to describe attitudes and actions towards conservative Christians that, frankly, the rest of the world would scoff at if we use the word persecution, right? There's actual persecution happening around the world where, I mean, we talk about some of our Muslim background believer friends in different places where we've partnered with seminaries um, to to reach and educate uh, Muslims with, uh, can you, none of us have to worry about coming to faith in Jesus and then worry about being killed mm-hmm. um, or losing our jobs immediately or being driven out of our homes during the night uh, and being forced to flee simply because mm-hmm. we have said, Jesus is a Lord, right? Persecution in the New Testament, every time the word is used, it is an intentional program. It is a thought out, this is how we're going to destroy the movement of Jesus within our society. It's it's always this thought out thing. And, but we're, we're tending to use the word persecution to refer to minor antagonisms, yeah. right? Well, somebody finds out I'm a Christian, they treat me a little bit differently. Well, yeah, that's not persecution. That's pluralism. Um, I find out somebody is a vegan and I treat him a little differently, right? Sure. <laughs> nah, yep. I, should, I shouldn't joke about you know veganism, but th- um, that's the way we're being treated. Now, there are places, obviously, where right now um, you could be working somewhere that's requiring you to do things like put your pronouns in your email um, footer, right? Or you'd have to sign on the dotted line, a diversity inclusion statement or some things where it's like, ah, okay, but this is making me say things that I don't agree with on one level or another. And I, and I know a lot of our folks are in those kind of situations and they're like, I'm not sure what the right thing to do is here. If I don't go along with it, um, am I at risk of losing my job? Am I at risk of losing my livelihood? Am I at risk of losing social capital? Um, and those are real, those are real issues. It's not a, it's not persecution to the level where it's sort of a systematic or system-wide organized coordinated effort, Um, Mm -hmm. but it is sort of the, the general thought and feeling towards Christianity, especially conservative Christianity um, has shifted from one of that's a good thing to, okay, whatever, I'm neutral about it to no, that's a bad thing. So it's tempting for us now to claim the uh, claim it as an identity, I, and, I, and I mean an identity different than a descriptor, right? It's one thing to say, hey, Christians tend to face antagonism right now in our broader Western culture. That's a description. An identity is to say we are a persecuted minority, that um, there is a specific group out there that is trying to persecute harass, oppress, eliminate uh, conservative Christian belief. And that, you know, that group is the majority group in the power, in power and the ones that are trying to, to destroy Christianity. Um, yeah. You can get, I, I know you can get online. You can, you can go to certain news outlets. You can go to certain websites and you can find people claiming that there's this huge coordinated network that is doing all this stuff. I, I you know, uh, if, if people are finding those things and believing that's absolutely true, nothing I'm saying right now is going to convince them otherwise anyway. So I, I'm not even going to address 
um, the the kind of fear stuff that that is all out there. Um, other than to say, look, if someone's on a screen and they're telling you something, it's because they're selling you something. Um, they're trying to get your attention in order to make uh, their own living. And we all know what gets your attention. It's things that make you angry. Um, Anger is the easiest way to get somebody's attention and to hold it and to get them to get other people in and to get increasing, you know, anger and fear. So mm. I don't want to go into all that, but yeah. the, the part, the part about claiming an identity as a persecuted minority and the point I was trying to make in the sermon without using any of the, the buzzwords or any of that is our culture exists. Now we have shifted or we're beginning the shift away from a sort of law and justice culture back into an honor and shame culture mm. where you are you should be shamed if you say or believe the wrong things honored if you say or believe the right things and if you are saying and believing the right things that's what makes you righteous if you're saying and believing the wrong things that's what makes you unrighteous the the how we define though or what gets honor and what deserves to be shamed has shifted from other honor shame cultures and honor shame cultures in the past. Now, what should be honored or the, the people we think are most honorable are those that are most oppressed or those that face the most opposition or have the least power. So uh, a lot of people are talking right now about Marxist ideologies and so-called wokeism. None of us agree on what the word woke means. So I'm not going to use that word to describe this, but within uh, critical theory, there any critical theory, there's critical race theory, there's critical uh, economic theory, there's lots of critical theories. Um, but within any critical theory, there is an, an important aspect called intersectionality, which basically says the more um, minority identities you hold, uh, the more oppressed you are, and therefore we look at that person and say, okay, that person is more to be honored. So if you are right, a, a white heterosexual male, you're not being oppressed. If you are a black same-sex attracted female, you are, or transgender person or whatever you are, right? So the more of those identities you can get together, the more oppressed you are. And in our honor shame culture, the more oppressed you are, the more honor you have mm -hmm. as a persecuted minority. And so, uh, you know, the more honor you have there and um, the second best way to get honor in our honor shame culture right now is to advocate on behalf of those who are the most oppressed. So you need to become an ally. You need to, you know, work for justice, equality, inclusion, um, some of those, those buzzwords. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is when we claim an identity as a persecuted minority, we are playing the same game as the rest of the world. Uh, we're saying, hey, no, 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 you don't understand. You guys are actually the ones with power and we're the ones without power. We're the ones who should be honored and you're the ones who should be shamed. Instead of just saying, look, having power, not having power, being persecuted, not being persecuted has nothing to do with honor or shame. It has nothing to do with righteousness and unrighteousness. I am unrighteous because I'm a sinner and I'm righteous because Jesus died to forgive me. And I've come to him in faith. It has nothing to do with whether or not I'm being persecuted. But I'm sensing among conservative Christians, especially online, especially those of a political bent that are trying to gain a following or used to be in politics and are now in media. Um, they're grabbing onto and leading us into grabbing onto this identity as a persecuted minority so that we can say, we're the powerless ones. We deserve honor. You should be shamed. 
and we're playing the honor shame, we're playing the Marxist game that the rest of the world is playing and it's not biblical. So yeah. let's yeah. just not even go there. Hey, can I ask you to clarify when you say, when we do this, who's the we that you're talking about? Is this just Christians in America? Is this mm. everywhere? Because yeah, great question. I because this, um, the service that I went to in the very back of the sanctuary is a couple from our church that are missionaries in a closed country. And I'm like, I think that this would be different for them. They probably are. Yep. So yep, for sure. just clarify who, who are we talking about in this, this whole mm -hmm. uh, context here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I say we do this, I am primarily talking about uh, Western American, predominantly white, generally conservative, um, generally would lean towards some of the, the principles that historically the Republican party has leaned towards um, and so it, it's those of us who kind of used to be in, in a position of cultural power and have now fallen away uh, or are no longer have access to that cultural power that we used to have. Okay. Thank you. Just wanted to yeah. just double check. Okay. Um, okay. My last question for you. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, I was going to say, if anybody has any further questions about that, right. You know, let's, let's keep talking about it. This is like really sensitive ground. I totally get that. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it's not just sensitive ground theologically in terms of who's righteous, who's unrighteous, or intellectually in terms of understanding really what critical theory is and what's being said. But it's also sensitive ground emotionally and pastorally because like I grew up in this country too, and I'm devastated by some of the changes that I see on an emotional level, but I'm trying to get my loves in the right alignment and trying to love my neighbors more than I love my country. I, I'm, I think I'm called to love my neighbors and introduce them to Jesus. I'm not called to save my country from um, whatever ruin is facing us at any given time or during any given election. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you said this, you know, in cover time and, and in your sermon, it's not a flippant a, like remark like you put so much time and prayer and thoughtfulness into like into you know creating this part of your sermon and so I just oh what's that face yeah no no I'm just I just am like yes because we we've got to realize we're not being persecuted antagonism is not persecution not in the way it's being used here or around the world and antagonism isn't bad it's evidence that we live in a world that needs jesus so yeah. let's let's just get i just want us to be more more captured by the beauty of who jesus is and more interested in introducing him to people than we are angry about the forces of darkness and the changes that are happening to the world around us mm -hmm. that, that's it mm -hmm. um, Mar um marilyn robinson great novelist, wrote uh, some wonderful books, Gilead, Jack, a few other, Homecoming. Um, she, believers, she says, fear is not a Christian habit of mind. And I think the word habit is really important there because you can, you can start to habitually respond to everything in fear and end up um, just going straight to fear all the time for any new bit of information instead of, you know, curiosity or uh, love being a Christian habit of mind. So, mm -hmm. or hope. I often think that, like, the yes. opposite of like, yes. fear is just hope. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. Yep. 
All right. Thanks, Joey. Thank you for your time. And yeah, we just appreciate, you know, your thoughtfulness and prayerfulness as you prepare these messages. Yeah. Well, great questions. And um, so I, I'm always excited to engage uh, further with what we studied on a Sunday morning. So thanks. Thanks for yeah. hosting. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Cut for Time. If you wish to submit questions to our pastors following their sermon, you can email them to podcast at faithliveitout.org or text them into our Faith Church texting number, and we'll do our best to cover it in the week's episode. If this conversation blessed you in any way, we encourage you to share it with others. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week.